All right, we are gonna get started. Are you guys ready for a motherfucking story? Yeah! <laughs> this is really fun. I, I swear a lot. I'm not sorry. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna begin the story actually by giving you a sense of the setting, the time and the place. And I'm gonna do this in a slightly roundabout way where I'm gonna tell you a different story from a different time and place, and you'll see why in a moment. So this different story is a true story about a woman named Bridget Cleary, whom I welcome you to look up on Wikipedia if you want. And Bridget Cleary in 1895 was burned to death by her husband. This took place in Ireland. And their doors and windows were open. All the neighbors could see and hear. Nobody did anything to stop it. And then afterwards, it went to trial, and this trial was a big media sensation, and 1895 is not that long ago. And there's a lot of interest in it, not just because of the nature of the crime and how horrible it was, but also because of the nature of the defense and how interesting it was. So the defense was that her husband did not intend to murder Bridget Cleary. He was trying to save her because he was convinced that his wife had been kidnapped and replaced by a fairy imposter, a changeling. And that in burning this imposter, he was trying to get his real wife back. And the reason I tell this story is because this defense, as strange as it might sound to us, actually carried a lot of weight. Like that folklore around fairies and changelings was deeply rooted in that culture. And it played a significant role in the defense and in the sentencing and all that because people believed that he believed that sincerely. And all these things that we think of as fairy stories, we think of them as like entertainment for children. Like it was not, it was serious business to these people. It's like, yeah, fairies are real, they're dangerous. They might kidnap your kids or your wife. And how do you prevent that? And how do you fix it if it's happened? And what countermeasures can you take? Like fairies are supposed to hate iron. And so if you put like a knife or scissors that can help protect your baby from being stolen. So these fairy tales, they're practical, it's like the handbook for how do you survive. And I tell this whole thing because my story takes place in the early Middle Ages, and it takes place essentially in our own true history, in our real world. The only difference is that those fairy stories have an element of truth to them in this world. And it's not a far stretch because the people who are alive during that time sincerely believe that my world that I'm about to tell the story in was the world that they lived in. So even though it's fantasy, and there's magic, and there's fairies, I want to be like deeply grounded in reality to feel more like historical fiction than like traditional fantasy. So that's the setting in which this story takes place. So now I can begin telling you like the events of the story. So the story begins with a young prince, and he's not the prince, the one in the log line, he's a prince. And he is the youngest son of his family. He has got a bunch of older brothers and sisters. And he doesn't really take anything very seriously because of that. So when he comes of age, he's like, screw this and screw this life. Like, I'm young, I'm hot, I'm rich. Like, I'm just going to explore the world. And so he's exploring the world. And in his course of his adventures, he meets a fairy princess. And they fall in love, and they have what's very much like a classic literary romance, like very intense and passionate and obsessive and kind of possessive. And they have a baby, 
and they name him Rowan. So, so far in the story, we've got Rowan, the baby. We've got mom, who's a fairy. We've got dad, who's a human prince. And they're this little family of three, and they roam the world having adventures, and everything is wonderful. Then dad's family suffers a tragedy where essentially his entire family, his parents, his siblings, everyone who's ahead of him in the succession dies in the same disaster, which is based on real historical disasters where this sort of thing happened and would like create succession crises and that sort of thing. And in this event, in this, in this like terrible tragedy that happens, when I tell the story, I, I really want to explore this sort of sometimes underexplored side of disasters where like obviously there's this intense personal loss and grief but in real life when a person dies a lot of times there's simultaneously a giant legal slash financial slash logistical nightmare that hits you at the same time when you're least prepared to deal with it so this is like an extreme version of that because dad is like the message is like hey uh all your family is dead also you need to come home right the fuck now like you've got a lot of work to do so dad has this moment where he's, he's trying to deal with this sudden calamity and then he, he's telling his lover about it and he's telling her like, I'm really sorry, I, I have to go home and I, I have to do this and I wasn't expecting to have to do this, but like, are you gonna leave? And there's like this crossroads with them and she says, no, I'm not gonna leave. Like you belong to me and I belong to you and we are gonna, we're, we're meant to be together. We're always going to be together. And so it's this like really romantic, really passionate thing where she promises that she will, she, she will come with them. If that's what he has to do, she will come with them. She will live that life with them, pass as a human, be his queen. So this is like a really amazing moment for them as a couple. And they travel, the three of them, back to his home castle. And there's this amazing, glorious coronation, like pageantry, like really classic fantasy stuff. <coughs> And she is super beautiful, super charismatic, so everyone loves her. And everything's really beautiful and romantic for a while. And of course, because this is my story, like before long the romance starts to fray, where it turns out in the day-to-day, -day, passing as a human just sucks a lot for her. You know, like trying to control her wild urges and living this lie and it also turns out in practice, like being king sucks a lot. Like this guy was originally, you know, he was like a this like dashing adventurer archetype, and now he's this browbeaten administrator who has to do politics and taxes. And the only reason he does it is because he's got tremendous survivor's guilt, where his family was always kind of exasperated with him, and he was always away gallivanting around the world while they were doing all the like shit work and now they're gone, he never got to say goodbye, and he has no way to honor them, and he's kind of overcompensating, he's throwing himself into workaholism to try to overcompensate and not really directly confront his grief, like instead of grieving and crying, he's like just working. And mom can tell that this is the case, that this dynamic is happening, and she is not a fan. Like she wants him to properly feel his emotions and like confront it directly, and. And she becomes increasingly convinced that this job is just bad and bad for him and bad for all of them and that they should just quit. So as dad is confiding in her, 
increasingly over time, she starts to have this like, I think you should just quit kind of energy. And it comes from a well-intentioned place, but to him, it's like he would really rather her be like, you can do it. It's really hard, but you can do it. So they grow further and further apart. And they also start having disagreements about parenting. So I'll take this opportunity now to kind of give you a sense of Rowan, this baby, who's now a toddler, like, like two or three years old. And the way to understand Rowan's character, so first of all, he is a realistic small child, which you don't actually see that often in fiction. And the way I think of small children is that they're essentially wild animals, where <laughs> it's, it's as though you like went into the forest or like the wilderness and you kidnapped a chimpanzee and you're like, you're gonna like come home and wear shoes and live in my house full of nice things, it's gonna be great. Like this is what toddlers are like. And all toddlers as far as I can tell. And fairies are these like untamed nature spirits. So Rowan being half fairy is like particularly so. So he's wild and rambunctious and embodied and very alive. Uh, he's also very willful, like very stubborn throws proper tantrums, like the way real children do when he doesn't get his way. But counterbalanced against that part of his personality, he's also deeply empathic. And that's kind of more his fairy side, like kind of whatever people around him are feeling, he will feel it too, whether he wants to or not. So he's got this dual nature, like these two aspects that kind of hold each other in check. Also, he loves animals, and animals love him. So this is approaching like, Disney princess levels of animal affinity. So that's Rowan. So anyway, mom and dad start to have disagreements because for example, like Rowan, <laughs> Rowan really likes to be naked. Like this is also a real thing with real kids. Like he loves to take his clothes off and um, mom and dad have different reactions to that where mom's like, oh, like, yeah, you're free. Like, woo. She thinks it's really beautiful. And dad's like, kid, you can't be naked in front of the guests. Like it's not, appropriate. And it's like this classic, classic parenting dilemma where on the one hand, you want your kid to be expressed, self-expressed, be unique. Uh, on the other hand, you don't want them to be so weird that they'll never find a job. <laughs> and um, so mom and dad come down on opposite sides of this dilemma. And mom in particular has this thing she likes to do with Rowan where every now and then she'll kind of steal into his room like late at night and wake him up and she'll be like, hey kid, it's the full moon. Do you want to see some magic? And he's like three, so he's like, fuck yes. <laughs> he doesn't literally say that. All the dialogue, is, all the dialogue in this show is paraphrases. Um, but but he, he's like, yes, I would like that. And so they go out and beyond the grounds of the castle and she'll find, for example, like deserted field, freshly tilled field, and she'll kind of park him and devise a little crown for him out of plants. And then she'll do this amazing dance for him under the moonlight. and fairy dancing, it's like very improvisational and chaotic and it's beautiful. And as, she, as she's dancing, you know, these plants are growing out of the earth around her, like weeds and brambles and roses in particular are, are a thing with her. These, these roses are like growing up and forming this dome around them, this amazing amphitheater as she's dancing. And then the next morning, you know, it's, it's still there and the farmers will come by, they're like, oh, the fairy's been dancing, like must've been fairies. And this gives dad anxiety. She's supposed to be passing as a human and she, she might blow their cover if she keeps doing this. And her perspective on that feedback is like, oh my God, can we not have this one thing? She's sacrificed so much passing as a human. This is the one thing she still does to connect with her heritage, to connect Rowan to his heritage. 
And so they start fighting a lot over this. And the more they fight, the more anxious dad gets, the more controlling he gets. Like he starts posting guards to prevent them from leaving the grounds. And she starts to feel really trapped. And, and meanwhile, dad is trying to work on Rowan. He's like, you know, don't just, just say no. Like, you know, if she, she tries to, don't leave the castle at night. And, and Rowan doesn't like seeing his dad unhappy. So he's like, okay, dad. But you know, he's, he's fucking, he's three. And these escapades are the most amazing things he ever experiences. So like he keep, and she's very persuasive, very charismatic. So they keep going and this tension keeps growing. And, and finally it gets to a point where so mom had this talisman that was given to her by her own mother when she started dating this human person. And normally to cross between the worlds, you have to go to special places where the boundaries thin. But with this talisman, she can do it without going to such a place. And the only catch is once it's invoked, it can, she can never come back. It's like a one-way ticket. And she resists for a long time. She wants to save dad. She, wants, she thinks all of them should leave this situation. But finally, she gets desperate enough that she's like, you know, forget dad. I need to save myself. I need to save my child. So she, she wakes Rowan up late at night, as she does. And Rowan's got this like twinge of guilt, but he goes with her. And she takes them to some spot on the grounds. And she starts doing her dance. But the plants are really kind of sinister and dark and brambly and thorny and grasping. And th it's got this like really dark energy. And Rowan's like, this is really weird and intense, but uh, okay. And, and then she's like, Rowan, it's very important that when the moment comes that you take my hand. Because like this talisman, it targets herself personally. So for her to bring Rowan with, with her, Rowan has to willingly come with her. And so he's like, oh, okay. And then she invokes this talisman and the spell is starting to take effect and like her body is glowing and starting to become like transparent in this like really spooky way. And then as this is happening, dad, charges up on a horse and he is furious. Like he is angrier than we've ever seen him. He charges up and he's like confronting Rowan. He's like, you're, you're like getting the fuck on this horse right now. We are going the fuck home. So now this, this poor kid, Rowan, he's like, mom wants one thing and dad wants another. And they're both being really unusual and really intense. And he's really confused and scared and young and he doesn't know what he's supposed to do. And what breaks the tie is he remembers that he had promised that he would stop leaving the castle at night. And if he were a stereotypical like, fool fairy, he wouldn't give a fuck because fairies are all about doing what's in the moment. Like that was the past, like, I can't be accountable for that person's promises. Like, but but <laughs> humans have a sense of honor and a sense of shame. So Rowan feels shame for his broken promise and so he goes with dad. And then dad scoops him up on the horse and he starts riding away fast. And Rowan's like, what, what? Like dad has basically inferred what was going on. And Rowan's like, what, what about mom? Like, and dad's ignoring him, just like really intent and focused. And then Rowan starts to freak out and panic and goes, stop. And he slams his hands onto like the horse's shoulders. And the horse who had been at like a flat out gallop, like stops so suddenly that dad almost falls off and, and he's trying to get it back under control. And meanwhile, Rowan kind of like Tarzan swings his way to the ground. And now he's sprinting desperately back the way he came. And dad is panicking because he might lose his son. And he, he's trying to chase after him on the horse. And as he's doing that, these like 
animals materialize out of the ground and the air, like rabbits and bats, and they like spook the horse and, and get in its way, stopping him. And Rowan's Rowan sprinting and sprinting, and, and he makes it back to this, this dome, this rose dome, and he like bursts in, and he's, he's crying out for his mother, and she's gone. And where she was is just a single wild rose growing where she used to be. And that's the end of act one. Mom's, mom's gone. So there's four acts in total, and there'll be like a really short intermission between acts two and three. So I'm gonna continue on with act two. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs>